Uh, is that you, Tristan? Could be. How about now? How's that? All right, Darth Vader, Vader, Eddie Vader, <laughs> Darth Vader breathing ready. Oh, yes. Here we go. Welcome to Quarantine Comics. I'm Roman Segel. I'm Ryan Joe. And we are still two dudes who do not know much, but for the next 45 minutes, we will pretend to know something about comic books. And as always, if you have an idea for a book we should read or want to join the conversation or just yell at Ryan and me, hit us up, qtdcomics at gmail.com or just visit our really rad website, qtdcomics.com. This week, we are talking about the epic sci-fi fantasy saga by the team of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, known for lots of other really good stuff you probably never heard of. I would argue that Saga is one of the most unique, if not best current comics being put out right now. Since it came out in 2012, it's been a book I continuously revisit because it's so grand and personal in its scope. I always start from the beginning every time I come back to it. Some have called it How I Met Your Mother in Space. By some, we mean only Roman. Fine, but it has won lots of awards and it has actually been described as Star Wars meets Game of Thrones meets Romeo and Juliet, which I think is far more ambitious. Saga is the story of a husband and wife, Alana and Marco, from embittered and long warring planets on the run from the law of both sides of a galactic civil war, which they no longer want to be a part of. When the series begins, they've just given birth to their daughter, Hazel, who often narrates the entire series from the future as an unseen adult. Saga features robot royalty, rocket ship trees, future science, ancient magic, talking animals, bounty hunters, violence, comedy, and lots and lots of graphic love. The creators have often described the story as so crazy that they hope it's never adapted out of the medium of comics, and I tend to agree this is one special book. So today we're going to cover all nine volumes of the series in its entirety, or its current entirety, because after 54 issues, the book is on an indefinite hiatus, leaving us all in limbo waiting for the final half, as the creators are committed to the story running in its 108-issue run. Joining us, as always, is my archenemy Ryan, but also the thunder from down under, my pal Tristan, joining us from Philadelphia. Welcome to Quarantine Comics. Thanks, Tristan. Thanks, Roman. Might be the first time that anyone's ever called me the thunder from down under, but uh, I'll take it. You hang out like with all the other famous Australian people, right? Like and work at an Outback Steakhouse. Fair? Oh, yeah. I mean, we all know each other. My friend the other day told me to watch a Amazon comedian special, Last One Laughing Australia. And he made a joke. He's like, you probably know someone on there. Turns out I went to college with one of the 10 comedians on the show. So yeah, we do. We all know each other. I have a question for you. Are there any Australian comics that you can think of? So is this where I have to guiltily admit to you that I only started reading comics last year after Raman started recommending <laughs> them to me? <laughs> Well, you had a really long train ride from New York City to Philly to pass the time with. I did. I was doing it every week. I've been doing that for a while. So comic books are now something that I get to do in the privacy of my own home, which for this one is probably a good thing because it might be some odd looks <laughs> <laughs> on the, the old Amtrak wages of this one. Well, actually, Tristan, I don't remember why the recommendation to try reading some comics came up, but like you have pretty good taste in science fiction, fantasy. You grew up reading a lot, as they do in Australia. I've heard. What what sort of things are you into? What's interesting to you? I, I did. And you use the right choice of words there. I grew up reading a lot. And unfortunately, life got in the way of a lot of my readings. I was into the absurdist humor of authors like Raul Dahl. As I grew older, you know, I did my Harry Potter phase. I don't know whether that should come before or after Raul Dahl, but as I grew older, I was an interesting mix of things from a reading standpoint. English literature was one of my focuses in my later years of high school. So I read a lot of the classics. And in the later years, when time was poor, I basically picked up books that I could fly through at a rapid pace. I think I read every Tom Clancy book cover to cover. I got sucked in by every Dan Brown novel. If it's got a fast racing plot, a bit of mystery, I'm happy to pick it up. So that, that's basically me in a nutshell i i love to read i don't have a lot of time so i need something that gets me like going at a rapid pace so does saga do it for you yes i plowed through the entire third book in the space of an hour or two and it was just one of those things where once i got halfway through book two i, I couldn't put it down like i needed to see where it's going 
and I'm devastated that it's on hiatus because I, I also like to finish what I start and it's, it's deeply difficult to leave it where it left off. And so, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, that's been a theme of a couple of the things we've been reading. We thought we'd start out <laughs> reading these things in their entirety. This is the third book that we picked up that ends on a pretty hefty cliffhanger. And we're just like waiting indefinitely, especially now that the world is kind of frozen. I would like to think these creators have nothing to do. So they need to hurry up and get me my sweet, sweet content. Ryan, we've talked about this book for years, but you weren't reading it. So this is virgin territory. It's definitely virgin territory for me unlike a lot of the characters in, in Saga. I have to admit, I, a confession, I didn't read the whole thing. I've got 100 pages left. I no. left, I stopped, I had to stop reading to do this podcast. Wow, there, there's something we can't talk about then. There's like literally stuff we can't talk about on this. Let's do it anyway. I probably will be pretty silent, but I'm going to finish it tonight. And if there's spoiler stuff, that's fine. Tristan, let's make a pact to not spoil everything else that happens on the beach planet. What do you think? I think there is more than enough for us to talk about <laughs> before such a moment. <laughs> I'm intrigued, guys. I'm intrigued because I know some shit's going to go down that's going to surprise me. I will say in general, I found this book very surprising. Oftentimes, they'll kind of lead you in one direction and then something completely different will happen. It's just the way a lot of the characters change because a lot of time passes in this first volume. We see a little girl grow up, you know, she's being born until she's about, what, seven, eight years old. And throughout that time, you see a lot of transformation with a lot of the characters. A lot of characters also die very unexpectedly. You expect them to kind of stick around for a long time. And Brian K. Vaughn is very liberal about Ned Starking. Pretty much almost everyone is, is at risk. No one is safe. No one is safe. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I kind of stopped reading superhero comics because everyone was in stasis. Anytime there was a huge shift in something, there would inevitably be a retcon three or four years later. Yeah, they're, they're going to come back. That's obviously not the case with Saga. It has a lot of the action and the pace of superhero comics, but it also has the consequences that a lot of superhero comics or comics that are continuing and don't have a definite end. It has the consequences and the weight that a lot of those comics don't have. So Brian K. Vaughn, when I first heard of him, someone recommended another book of his, probably either Why the Last Man or Ex Machina. He was a writer on Lost. And I don't know if the mediums are affecting each other because these writers kind of go back and forth between TV and comics because TV is where you make your name, you get your union card, but comics are where you have the canvas to do whatever you want. And anyway, this reads like, and again, I never want this to be adapted to a TV show, animation, movie, and he purposely writes it that way, but it's written like seasons of a TV show, episodes of a TV show with character arcs, with lasting changes. People don't come back from the dead for the most part. I was going to say people don't come back from the dead on TV, but I know there's probably a few examples. Well, yeah, yeah there's obviously that overarching plot of this family on the lamb and everyone's trying to kind of come after them. And within that, there are all these little subplots. Each episode is almost like its own episode. Each book, each chapter is sort of like its own little subplot. Something happens. Season, yeah. And and it, it kind of resolves at the end, but it also kind of very subtly moves the meta plot forward. So I can kind of see that being like a TV show where, you know, you yeah, I actually haven't watched Lost, but, you know, I was just thinking of, of Breaking Bad where you have this meta narrative. These characters are transforming, but each episode has its own little conflict that emerges. And at the end of that conflict, when that conflict is solved, usually it opens up a new problem. Well, Ryan, I want to put you on the spot, though, because you kind of have evaded the answer. What'd you think of it? Did you like it? Did you not? Is it worth the hype? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Okay. So here's what I here's what I loved about it. I love the world building. The world building is fan-fucking-tastic in this book. I like how everything is sort of recognizable. There's a lot of shots of suburbia, even though it happens in space, for instance. A lot of lives that are pretty much similar to what we're living. But the creators, Fiona Staples, right? Yeah. I almost said Apple. <laughs> That would have been wrong. And uh, Brian K. Vaughn, you know, they always kind of throw in a wrinkle that really kind of surprises you. Let me give you an example. Uh, Iantha, the assassin who's really pissed off at the will, she captures him and she's torturing him in her house. You see, you get these exterior shots of a house that looks like a very modern, very normal, maybe Los Angeles home, only to realize that is actually her spaceship. That house is enclosed in a glass pyramid, which exists on top of a neon jellyfish. That jellyfish is her spaceship. So it's stuff like that, where you have something that's very mundane. And they throw in something that's very, very fantastical. And he does this consistently. And it's always sort of surprising to me because you kind of think, you know, okay, she's just kind of housed him away in a normal prison. And then boom, actually that prison is a spaceship. The spaceship is like a giant jellyfish. And I found that was one of the things that really kind of 
propelled me. I have a few complaints, but I'm kind of curious, Tristan, your take on this. Yes. So I think that's exactly what gives the license to explore the really lofty topics that they throw out there. I mean, they really go deep into the substance of relationships, drug abuse, the ethics of war. He bites off some really, really lofty topics. That's what's always been great about science fiction, not even comic books. Science fiction says, yeah, we're talking about weird aliens and jellyfish pyramids. We're not commenting on society and they get to do it. I love it. I know. It's great. And through that lens, I think that it just gives you an opportunity to kind of reflect and relate, which feels so wrong in some (laughs) ways that you can be sitting here floating through space on a wooden rocket that's alive, and yet it feels familiar, it feels safe, it feels comfortable, and you can really put yourself in the seat of each of these characters, which is kind of remarkable. So I really enjoyed that element of it. Sort of like the absurdist nature of it lets you go anywhere. You can literally bite off any topic. There's one word to describe this book, and it's not weird. It's not fantastical. It's heart. I feel like this book has a lot of heart. And the arguments that the couple has, Alana and Marco, feel like some of the arguments my wife and I have had. And the obsession with their kid, like literally even after... passionate adult time. There's just so many real moments. It feels like it was written by real people for real people at the life stage, Tristan, you and I are. Did any of it ring true to like your own experiences as a husband and a parent? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Book one is the one that best reflects that. Through the different phases of book one, there's a good amount uh, of time spent in terms of the past, right? Before they had children. Yeah. And the substance of the conversations that they're having big, ambitious conversations with big implications or what their relationship means, the life that they would have to live and all of that kind of stuff. And I would say nearly everything in the present tense is a single-minded focus on their child. I don't know that we see them having any real deep conversations beyond their daughter. And as a parent, I can certainly relate to that shift that happens in your relationship, knowing that there's now, in my case, two little people that are entirely dependent on you and they're your world, they're your future. I think the book does a really nice job of reflecting that. I'm not a parent, but I did kind of recognize there's a certain minutia to the way parenthood is depicted here. And I agree, the amount of detail given to Marco and Alana having disagreements about how they raise their children to arguments that a couple would have, that elevated the book quite a bit. And also, I, I would say like one of the most effective moments actually was when Alana's second child dies in her womb and they have to have an operation to get it out. And she kind of manifests this phantom boy. And it was really effective to me because it was was a science fiction element that was true to the world that had been built in Saga. But it was also kind of reflected the sense of loss that she had, the wish that she had that she could give birth to this healthy child of what he could be, and also the relationship he could have with the daughter. That was kind of the moment when a lot of the parenthood stuff really meshed with the world that Vaughn and Staples had built. Because in other areas, I felt like Alana and Marco were mostly defined by being parents. And it almost felt like even though they were reacting to the world around them, it was almost like a separate story, like a quiet little Noah Baumbach story. existing sort of crazy Jocelyn sci-fi sort of universe. Oh, I I thought you were going the other way because we spent 20 minutes talking about the parenthood elements of it, right? I feel like all the other sci-fi being on the lamb, even though it's like front and center and full color, full blast, that often feels like the side plot. It's like yeah, marital struggles, parenting stress, and then the science fiction stuff. <laughs> no, here it's primal, but you really only see it, I, for me, really come together in that moment of mourning where he's really kind of calling. I mean, I know there's a war and the whole reason they're running is because of the war, Yeah, but that could literally be the Romeo and Juliet thing right that could be yeah, yeah, yeah but that moment with the child or the loss of the child that's where all of the elements that vaughn and stables had been building that's when they all kind of came into play i agree to that but i think it happens sooner and more often i think one they introduce the in-laws the death of parents the part that kind of breaks my heart as i continue to read it is every time the family is separated and every time hazel from the future would like it's so often it was almost a trope i, I felt like it happened at the end of almost every other volume the last words in the volume were the future narrating something foreboding the whole family hugs and she's like and that's the last time my parents were together for five years or something like that (laughs) and like anytime it's like impending doom of this family being separated i literally felt the tug at my heart i was like holy crap uh, i need to go hug my daughter no don't go what's it (laughs) 
It's an effective cliffhanger, right? I mean, that's kind of the strategy that Vaughn kind of revisits over and over again, where he shows a moment of tranquility that kind of resolves everything in this initial chapter. But then there's that that cliffhanger moment. It, you don't see it in action, but you have this voice kind of saying, oh, shit's gonna get really bad soon. Yeah, because I'm writing from the future. Exactly. One of the the comments you made just before about the, the scene where they lost the child, that scene really touched me from a slightly different perspective as well. I looked at it as one of the first times I've kind of seen someone uh, tackling that subject also from the perspective of the sibling there was something very real about making it real for the child that made it incredibly emotional to think this immediate relationship formed they've created this person you've seen what life would be like to be a, an, an older sibling and then just torn it away and so I know you mentioned the the impact on sort of mourning losses as a parent but I thought it was really interesting just to think that they made it much more about the child which when you think about life and people that you speak to that may have been through similar experiences, I don't really know that I've ever thought about the impact it could have on other kids in the household. It's been a rough few months with the world and something I'm trying to, you know, it's, there's one form of empathy with the people you love, like your spouse or the, your coworkers, whatever. You try to see the world through their eyes. And in the last three months, I've really been trying hard to see the world through my daughter's eyes, right? Uh, so I have a four-year-old, Tristan years, or I think, what, five and two or five and three? Two. Yeah, I just, and it, it can be something as simple as seeing the world from how tall they are, right? And like the helplessness or the things they cannot do, the things they physically cannot reach or they can't put words to. And if there's one thing I wanted more of is I wanted more of the world from Hazel's perspective, not Hazel from the future, right? I love that narration. I, if anything, I almost kind of want to just read those narration boxes by themselves in isolation because there's a lot of commentary on parenting and life then followed by the story. But uh, it was a real treat to see this little girl grow up, right? Over the course of reading it over five days or even five years, you see all the machinations of the world that would ultimately affect her through all these other characters and all these other hijinks. But very rarely, I mean, with the exception, I think when they're living on the comet, they show her perspective with her new friends and having to leave her friends and her first kiss and all that stuff. Oh, and also with the teacher when they're in the, the prisoner of war camp. I was left wanting more of, of Hazel's perspective. That would um, be tricky, I think, because he, he pretty much establishes Hazel as, you know, she is a narrator, obviously, but it's, they basically establish her as not only from the distant future as an adult, but also they give her a certain omniscience, wherein it seems like she's even narrating stuff that didn't necessarily concern her or her family. You know, she'll narrate about what's happening in the robot kingdom, for instance. Vaughn kind of locks himself into that perspective, and it's kind of hard to go into childhood Hazel, uh, other than kind of seeing how she's reacting in certain scenes as a child. That, as you mentioned, how you kind of get her perspective. But again, it's limiting. Like Chris Ware, when he did the chapter on the bully and Rusty Brown, literally you're in that kid's head. And I don't think that's a trick that Vaughn can really pull off. Just given the narrative rules he establishes early, he's locked into that. Well, if anything, leave him wanting more, right? Like you want, yeah. leave, leave the audience wanting more. I'm fine to not be fully satisfied, to be clear. Yeah, unlike this couple. <laughs> so. Well, that seems like they're fully satisfied quite a bit. I will say, though, one of the issues I had is that Alana and Marco were actually, aside from the nuances of them being parents, they were almost a little bit boring to me. And this is something I've always I've noticed in a lot of like TV shows and a lot of books, where you've got the main character, and they're kind of a blank slate. They're kind of generically handsome, behave the way you'd expect good parents or whomever to behave. And they're surrounded by a bunch of really quirky, weird people. And it's those really quirky weirdos who kind of capture your attention more. And that was definitely the case in Saga. While I was certainly drawn by the narrative elements of like, oh, are they going to get their kid back? Oh, they've been separated. Oh, no. As characters, I, I found them to be a little bit bland. And this was most notable to me in, when they were falling in love over this book, which I thought was a little bit like I, I kind of got the sense that Vaughn couldn't figure out how to really make them fall in love convincingly. So they basically just had Alana read passages of a book. And for whatever reason, Marco got into it and then they absconded. They fled to they eloped. I'll fight that a little because I think if this whole thing is told from the perspective of the kid, it's kind of a foregone conclusion that your parents fell in love and got together because all that's that not happened the issue. before you. That's, the issue yeah. isn't them falling in love. The issue is how they fell in love. The issue is that compared to everybody else, all of the surrounding cast and characters, Alana and Marco are kind of mundane, even in the way they look. They're kind of like these generically handsome CW sort of people, whereas everybody else has their quirks and their weirdnesses and their erratic 
natures that sometimes overtake them. That's fair. Well, I brought this up. Jerry Seinfeld's usually the most boring person on his show. Yeah. You know, Kramer and George and Elaine are way more interesting. So let's talk about the other people who I, I think you have a predilection for Prince Robot, Ryan. But who'd you like? Uh, I mean, I want a goose doll. They make one. So if anyone wants to buy me one, please do. Like other than the, the main three. So I really was intrigued by the the robot race and i think more for the symbolism of the role that they played than necessarily the characters themselves you know i think that they did a really nice job they didn't have to explain why these robots were these superior beings but they did an incredible job of creating this world where everybody is slave to the computers to the devices to the robots i thought that was fascinating I never imagined that you could really create a world with these half robot, half person. I don't even know how to describe what they are because <laughs> they're very human, but they're very not at the same time. And so I, I thought that was a really interesting world to explore. The other characters that I really enjoyed was the mother-in-law. She is everything that a grandmother should be, right? Protective, caring, completely selfless towards her grandchild and immediately well not immediately but fairly quickly welcoming of the in-laws and I just thought that there was a real sort of complexity and depth to her and she just kept on surprising new turns every time from mourning to a new relationship to top dog in the prison <laughs> she really just can wear any hat and did it seamlessly and I thought that was really fun it was a really fun world to play in yeah Roman you pegged me correctly I I have a predilection for the robot kingdom i would say first off when they're first introduced you know as prince robot the fourth there's almost something willfully stupid about that <laughs> i mean and, and he just leans into it i mean it's like yeah it's king robot prince robot duke robot the other thing that i found really interesting initially i was like oh should they do more and make them more robotic but i actually kind of liked how they left it whereas they're pretty much human except for a couple of details one of which is the fact that they all have computer monitors or televisions for heads and i found that really interesting first it kind of like let them explore a certain hierarchy where the royalty robots have color tvs and the peons are black and white but also the other thing is that you can't draw facial expressions at all with those robot tv heads but you never had to do word balloons right right and yet they're all completely perverted and i really kind of love that like i love the idea of these people who try to be very formal and staid and even have this look that's completely expressionless and yet they're complete perverts and i kind of liked that dichotomy of visually they're one thing and then mentally they're something entirely different that was always surprising to me the revelations of what's going on in the robot kingdom when you first meet king robots it's just big fat dude with this giant flat screen tv head that follows the almost stupid logic of that particular group of people. And I also liked Isabel as well. Yeah, she, she was great. The literally disembodied, dismembered babysitter. Her death hurt. Yeah. I mean, or not her death, but her... I don't even really know. Really her second hurt. death, what yeah. you would call that. But that was like, yeah, that was like a really devastating moment. And I think that was really effectively done. Because, you know, the reality is that she can't be hurt. I mean, throughout most of, pretty much the entirety of the episodes, she's impervious she can be banished her only limitation is she has to come out at sundown and so when she is finally killed permanently i suppose that left an impression and i think the panels also was shocking you kind of see her being impaled and then you kind of see this close-up of her expression on her face this sort of shock and horror uh, which you had never seen in her before she'd been so confident and sassy and then she just kind of like her body just dissipates and she's gone and then there's the panel of the daughter whose bond has been broken from is i thought that was just so brilliantly done so I 100% agree, but what I would add to that is for all of the death and loss and destruction, you described it earlier, I think you said Star Wars meets Game of Thrones, which is really fair, but for all of that, there were very few that hurt in that way. You get kind of desensitized to it, and I wasn't ultra invested in many of the people that did die. But you know what? I think it's almost brilliant to me because one, no one's safe, right? So they're training you to know no one is safe. And so you become desensitized to people dying. But I think if anything, it hurts more when someone you care about dies. When the babysitter died, like 
Yeah, you still kind of develop a, oh, well, most of these people are safe. Most of these people are safe. If you're a minor character, you're dead. You're never going to kill one of the majors, right? Well, that's right. You get really feel like you've got this insurance policy on that character. It's okay to connect with this person. And what led to her death was the other lady that was living with them. She's like, hey, you need to go scout ahead. You're the only one who can't die. That's literally how it happened. But in terms of other characters, like I've got two words for you. Lying cat. I need one. I want one. <laughs> like, sign me up for the wait list. I need a lying cat. A lying cat. Lying cat's another great one. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. For the deaths, sometimes you could kind of see it coming. Like when the brand takes Sophie, you can kind of think, okay, you're building her up to be kill her. It's still sort of shocking to me. Sometimes the brutality of the death is very impactful. Like when, usually it involves mutilation. So when the brand gets chopped in half by the by the dragon when sweet boy her dog is made into a rug i thought that was both kind of funny and also really horrific and sad i mean he's a sweet boy he didn't deserve that again the world building the minor details are great if you are a bounty hunter you get a nickname and you are allowed to put the word the in front of it i thought that was great yeah <laughs> the brand the will i can't remember what half of the other ones were another thing worth noting and i've called this out a few times on this podcast when an writer and an artist pair for the long run. It just creates this consistent storytelling. And so Tristan, you may or may not know this with some of the books I've recommended you is usually when a team stays on for the whole run together, right? That happened with Vaughn's other book, Why the Last Man and a number of other stuff that we reviewed on this podcast. This is just as much Fiona Staples book as it is Brian K. Vaughn's. Her art gets a lot better throughout though. If you compare like the first book she worked on, her inking is almost kind of jittery and sketchy. And towards the later chapters, her art, her line work is just a lot more elegant and clean. And she seems a lot more confident in what she's doing. It was just sort of an observation. I didn't notice this as I was going through the book, but when I kind of would flip back from chapter one after reading pretty much all the way through, you can definitely see a noticeable difference in how she's putting this together. So I would have never known to kind of look for that. I just flicked open book three and there's a topless woman. But I agree with you. Yeah, it, it is definitely crisper relative to the first one. Yeah, I really like seeing artists evolve. She's actually pretty good. But like Adrian Tomine, if you look at his early work compared to his later work, or Dave Sim, who did Cerebus. Yeah. His early work is like incredibly crude and then it just becomes a lot sharper and, and then he becomes a misogynist and, and then everyone kind of forgets about him. But that's another story. Yeah, as I was flipping through to kind of look at the art, I, I like having these recollections with characters coming in and out of the narrative in fairly major roles, right? So look, we're not, not going to be able to cover every single character of, of significance in the next 10, 15 minutes, but Gwendolyn, right? She has an arc at the beginning, a little bit in the middle, and she just kind of disappears for a while towards the end. Same thing with the will. The will has a pretty significant comeback. And it lends itself to that, right? They're moving in and out of this universe, moving in and out of these forces. The world building, you opened with that, Ryan, and I think that's probably one of the other things that does this book justice. They're not making it up on the fly, or if they are, they're they're playing improv with the set of rules that the universe has. Yeah, I kind of got the sense he didn't know what to do with Gwendolyn. She wants to take down Marco, but it seems initially like first she's just fuck pissed with him. And then <laughs> later on, they kind of release this subplot of, oh, actually, it's as long as Marco's alive, Gwendolyn will never really ascend. Her career is kind of stalled because her ex-boyfriend's a traitor. And then she's kind of like doing these backroom deals that aren't entirely clear. It seems to me like she's one of those characters who kind of started out strong. And once her natural arc ended, her arc just kind of like petered out, really. I felt like Vaughn didn't really know what to do with her, but he likes her ward, Sophie, who's on her way to becoming a contract killer or a, what's it called? A freelancer. Very the professional. Yeah, right. And I think that's kind of why we sometimes see her. Because Sophie's the more interesting. Honestly, I've kind of worked my way through, I would say, the mundanity of the main couple compared to, in terms of their characters, compared to everybody else. A lot of what he's trying to build with Marco, you know, the pacifist, who doesn't really want to take up, eh, it doesn't really work for me. Mm. The way they fall in love doesn't really work for me. It's sort of like a contrivance. Marco, people always keep saying, oh, I'm, I'm scared of him. I'm really sure. And I don't really see that. He seems more like young father than someone who would legitimately pose a threat to to anyone else or who is a, a quote force of nature i don't know man like when he does commit to violence he tears shit up because 
he has this mastery of magic. And to me, he is a force. He literally obliterates people, just kind of futzes through it. Um, he's you, got a magic sword and he's got a gun. He's powerful when he has a weapon. No, he's got spells, yeah. man. He, he like, you those know. are weapons. I, I, I put those in the same boat as having a big gun. Okay. You know, for all intents and purposes, it's sort of the same thing. I don't know. You, I, I guess I would expect to see it more in his personality in terms of how he interacts with other people. That sort of force of natureness, that sort of confidence would come off. And he's really more, yeah, so, so that's my beef. No, I think he's a loaded gun. I can't in the next two minutes go find these moments, but there were moments where he's back into a corner and he says a couple of magic words and just destroys people. And if it's kind of like the Incredible Hulk, right? Like he knows he's a loaded gun. I feel like Mark Ruffalo said this in one of the Avengers movies. Like if you knew you could walk into a room and end anything, you would be scared of yourself, right? And I'm screwing that quote up as well, but... I found that actually the most, one of the most fascinating arcs of his, it's almost like alcoholism. He's just, he relishes in violence. He loves violence and he has these insane power, be it the sword, the gun, whatever, or the magic, frankly, just the magic words. He knows he can almost win any fight at least three times where we can use this violence to solve a problem, but it will come back to bite us in the end. And he has this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of when I unleash this violence, it comes back to harm me and my family. It comes back to harm someone I love. And whether or not it was a direct cause and his wife argues with him about that, he chooses to see the world that way. And I feel like it does. Maybe it's because I see the world through his lens. More. I like I like the idea of that, definitely. But I liked it a lot more than the execution. And again, it kind of goes back to his character where he always feels almost sort of hapless. And he's almost kind of dopey at times, um, which is what makes him a little more relatable. But when people say, I'm terrified of him you almost expect to see that in his personality or some aspect of that in his personality and i just did not see that and maybe that was me that was my personal reaction to the guy to the character ah man i wish <laughs> you'd finished reading this <laughs> uh tristan anything else or any other reflections on the book there was one little piece that i just thought was really fun which was uh, on gardenia which one is that? Which planet is that? So that's the one that's like suburban, very normal, but it's also where Alana's working on the open circuit, picked up a drug habit. But one of the things I really loved about it, so the open circuit, I just felt was like a fun opportunity for self-reflection on the book itself almost, where it was this crazy place where people could just have wild things happen to them, a lot of violence, a lot of sex it was kind of everything that the book is and it was just a chance for them to look at it and play with it from a different lens so i thought that was really fun but also at the end of the day to your point before ryan i thought it was another chance that they had to make marco more real they put the temptation of an affair in front of him and they just didn't really see it through they didn't really push the boundaries and there was just again mm. they had a chance to like really take it to the next level and explain some of that inner conflict and they never went there at the same time drug addiction of a lion it just felt like let's give her a drug addiction and let that play out for a little while <laughs> a very special episode of saga yeah like we need to give her a drug addiction for a little while and she'll kick it and we'll move on and it it just felt like a, a chunk of time in the series where it didn't move the needle a lot but they did get to play with some interesting topics that's a great point because it, you're leading the character to a cliff. Is this drug addiction going to really affect her relationship with everybody over the long term? Is Alana going to be able to forgive Marco from fucking this beautiful dance instructor or bat-like dance instructor? And, you know, but instead of kind of taking the characters off the cliff, which is where things would get interesting, they kind of stay about 10 feet back. There's an almost kiss and then he's reminded, oh, I've got my daughter. Or, you know, oh, i got this drug addiction, but it's okay. It's kind of under control and nothing really bad happens except Marco gets kind of angry about it. I, like, maybe you guys are a little too sadistic. I'm okay to be taken within 10 feet of the cliff because relationships take you within 10 feet of the cliff. And maybe some people have gone off the cliff and there's a purity to the characters. And to be clear, they're not perfect people. But I don't think they wanted to do irreparable harm to the characters. Like, let's be clear. <laughs> they will mutilate the characters. They will kill the characters you love, etc. But the, the character of the characters, right? The moral fiber of what they stand for. And effectively... And I did think the one thing that was weak was all he did was throw back a grocery center. <laughs> well, I say that <laughs> I would not do that to my wife, but Marco feels terrible about it. That's his 
bad as some of the violence of killing people to him. Alana, I don't know. I think they got closer to the edge than the 10 feet you guys think it is. I think it was dangerously close to the edge, really close to going off the rails in those moments. And again, the beauty of that moment, the heartbreak at the end of that chapter of that book was they both were terrible people. They both came really close to temptation and their punishment is, okay, your family's separated now. Sucks to be you. Like you literally go into trauma for two years after that. Yeah, here's why I don't like them not going off the cliff. I mean, in real life, fine. Yeah, go close to the cliff. Don't go off of it. You know, that's why we ride roller coasters. We want that feeling of free fall without ever actually having to lose control. In these dramatic moments, you really want to see the stakes elevated as much as possible. And if the main characters are never going to go completely off the cliff, if they're never going to really do something that could potentially shatter their relationship, like having an affair with this woman, with the dance teacher, or instead of throwing a bag of groceries, he reels back and decks her in the chin. You know, there's stuff like that. It's a much harder. I mean, the, the task for Vaughn would be much harder because, yeah, because suddenly but, because it would be relatable. Well, yeah, the minute... He's, the, shying the, away, he's shying away from that. No, the and minute... it's sort the, of like, minute, yeah, you're turning tail. The minute you Sorry, do that, on. the minute you do that, either of those two instances you just said, and Alana could have done something equally horrible, but the minute you do one of those things, you have alienated the character from your audience. Like, completely. Like, they're gone. Just think think of a no. TV show. Yeah, like, there no. is... there Maybe to you, there might be a form of redemption, but to your point, it would be a much harder task. You literally could have just killed Marco if you did either of those things. If you did either of those things, you would have assassinated the character. Never mind putting a bullet in his head. No. In Lolita, Vladimir Nabokov wrote the entire point of novel from the point of view of a guy who kidnaps and rapes a child. The entire thing. I mean, that's why that book is so tricky. He makes you enjoy the company of a child rapist. It's a much harder task to do. I feel that you're right. It's safer to just kind of like bring them close to the edge and take them away from it. But if Vaughn, and I'm not saying he could have done this, but if Vaughn, you know, made the characters do something completely reprehensible, but did it in a way that you still stuck with them, maybe you didn't root them on or you didn't think of them as the unblemished hero, that would have been a really amazing task. It would have been a Walter White type situation where the character just does something horrible and awful as it goes on, as the story goes on, but you're still kind of with that character. You're still kind of almost reluctantly rooting for him. So Walter White's a really good example. Like I was I was trying to find an example in popular culture where where the main protagonist did go over the edge. Um and Don Draper's done some things as well. Um you play The Last of Us too? Did either of you guys play? That's kind of the same thing where they're kind of they kind of flip the villain and the hero midway through. Yeah, I huh. I mean I always love that in TV when you can consider someone to be such the antagonist of the story for such a long time and then at some point be able to pull off that character turn and even if it's only for a a short arc to feel invested in their story it's one of my favorite tricks in a TV series it's hard to do well and sometimes it's an overused trope but when it's done effectively to spend three or four episodes rooting for someone who you've despised for you know 25 five before it is a pretty incredible feeling but they did that with prince robot i'm, I'm gonna keep coming back to defending these choices they did that with prince robot and, and they oscillate you with prince robot throughout the series i mean just literally play this out for yourself specifically after they left gardenia and the family was separated your read of the next book i might have quit the book like if marco struck alana or marco i I, okay and maybe this is kind of like sliding scale of of terrible character i might have been able to follow through with the book if marco did have a lapse of faith in his relationship because his wife was a drug addict and all of these things but it wouldn't have been true to the character to the dedication to his family but i probably could have survived that but like domestic violence like i'm not saying it doesn't have a place in fiction and in storytelling but to me i don't think you do that with the protagonist i mean i think this is where breaking bad is maybe the exception but it set out to do that from the first episode of breaking bad you know walter white sees jesse making a bad decision and seeing it as the only way out because he has cancer i don't think you could have it would have been too far of a turn i think for many readers i think it would have been too sudden there's a constant push of the moral boundaries with Walter White. He goes a little bit further. He kills somebody. He goes grayer and grayer and grayer. Every day it's grayer and grayer with him. Yeah. yeah. So if, if Marco suddenly just decked Alana because he was mad at her, that is too far. 
because it wouldn't have been true to the character. Right. I mean, th- I'm not saying that he had to have decked her. Otherwise, you know, I, I'm no invested or whatever. I'm, I'm just saying it kind of with what, what Tristan was saying, there were opportunities where you could push the drama further and have the characters do tougher things. And that would challenge the audience a lot more than it is right now. Right now, you kind of know fundamentally Alana and Marco will do the thing that we will root for. But the issue with Robot kind of oscillating between villain and hero, it's easier to take a villain and turn them into a hero. Harder to take the hero and turn them into a villain. Because again, you risk completely alienating your audience. It would have been a much more challenging book. It would have been a bigger risk. It would have, it would have been a bigger risk. And if, if Vaughn did it, and you're right, he might not have been able to pull it off. If Vaughn was able to pull that off, I think Sock would have been transcendent. Yeah, but again, I think it was already breaking boundaries, or it already has. And look, I'm rooting for this family. The strength of the characters, I'll come back to my one word description. This book has heart, and I'm invested in these people so deeply there are things where they don't feel completely real, but there's just moments in minutia that are hit way too close to home. Yeah, I'll just leave it at I'm a little too invested in Marco. So any parting thoughts about the book? Any any last moments, little things, big things, beefs? I got to read the last hundred pages. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> you really do. As you know, a lot can happen in a hundred pages in this book. I finally read it. We're doing this in two parts. Yeah. So this is a couple of days later, Ryan. You finally finished Saga, Volume 9. Yeah. I actually finished it 20 minutes after we were done recording that podcast. So I got to ask, our listeners, they just heard us arguing about Marco. Being boring. And you, and you hold to that now. Yeah, yeah. Even though he's dead Marco. Well, I mean, he's a dead boring guy. Look, he's, he's heroic. Yeah, you know what? He's going to do the heroic thing, which is confront the will. And he does. And it's like this climactic battle. And I wasn't too surprised that one of the parents died. I actually thought it would be Alana because there's a line earlier where it says that Alana never returns to her home planet. So I assumed that kind of foreshadowed that Alana would die, but instead it was Marco. I kind of figured one half of the pair would die because you kind of have to when you're taking an intermission, right? You have to have this climactic cliffhanger. Well, let me let me ask the question a different way, because uh, for us two days ago, but for the listeners five minutes ago, you and I were just arguing about not jumping off the cliff. And I was kind of making the argument, you can't assassinate the character. And I wanted to say before you assassinate the character, right? And I guess in saga time, that would have been maybe two or three years prior. So knowing what you know now, that he died. He sacrificed himself to save his children. Actually, I don't think he sacrificed himself. He died. He got into a fight with the possibility that he was going to die, but he didn't just like, you know, jump off a cliff. But he went off to protect his family and he died. Looking back now, had he done some unspeakable horror jumping off the cliff to, to further the character drama, would it have fit for you to have done that? Yeah, so that would be interesting, right? Because when we're talking about going off the cliff, on the one hand, there's a character-driven way to do it, where the, the character does something sort of horrible or flirts with doing something really, really horrible and falls off the precipice, and then you kind of have to spend the rest of the story redeeming him. And then in this case, there's sort of the Ned Stark thing where you just kind of kill off the main character, the hero, who you kind of set up as being heroic, and because of that, he's not going to die. It's hard for me to say whether that would have worked, because it's a hypothetical, right? It could have, it have, it would kind of depend on what happens in between. There could be an incident where he does something really abominable and he is redeeming himself and he is being badass and heroic and then he dies before he can fully redeem himself. There's tragedy there. Or you could be unable to redeem Marco. You push Marco's character too far. You're unable to redeem him and when he dies, it doesn't have the dramatic impact that it does in this instance. So it's kind of hard for me to say, well, knowing what I know now, Brian K. Vaughn should have done X instead of Y. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, you know, okay. So shifting gears from Marco, and we can always come back to him and his the immediate family, the core characters. Some other characters we didn't discuss that were fleshed out a little bit more in this chapter were the reporters. And you're a reporter. I, I, I meant to ask you, uh, how did you feel their portrayal of this gay couple, these reporters who were trying to sniff down the story of the century, who can't do it, they find a way to do it. They meet the subjects of the story, they get the story, they get the scoop. How did that play for you? 
So the reporters always felt extraneous to me, less so at the end, but still not core to the story, despite the fact that one of them does end up dying. Introduced, I'm not quite sure what to make of them because they seem sort of distant from the rest of the drama. Yeah, the whole time they're playing catch up. Yeah, exactly. They're playing catch up and the stakes seem so much lower. You know, Marco and Alana are literally running for their lives. The reporters just kind of want a story. And yes, within the narrative of Saga, that story could upend the entire war and change everyone's beliefs about wings versus horns about that whole conflict i guess there are some problems there with that firstly that's not as compelling to me as the immediate drama that marco and alana constantly face so it's definitely like a secondary plot and one that i always got impatient with because of that towards the end you learn about them a little bit more but they're still so much less interesting and compelling compared to everybody else who again is fighting for their lives the stakes for the reporters are so much lower. Obviously, one of them does end up dying, though that's really kind of at the end and, and sort of a shock. I mean, I guess. I mean, if you look at the odds of character mortality in this book, you know, if you have a pair of characters, there's a 50-50 chance. So Yeah, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier in this podcast that the world building is fantastic. And I, I still believe that. But there are certain aspects of the world building where I'm still a little bit confused and I think could be fleshed out a little bit more. And the reporters sort of emphasize that to me because there's this whole scandal of horns and wings don't breed. And if they breed, that's going to completely upend the whole reality, the whole foundation of this conflict. And it's kind of built up as this big conspiracy. And it's one that I didn't fully understand. And it's one that I wasn't particularly interested in understanding. So that was an aspect of the world building that I felt was very underbaked, underdeveloped, and not as interesting. And the reporters were a reflection of it and a constant reminder of that. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what else happened. Prince or knight-errant robot, the fourth, got his head ripped off. Eh. And that actually was interesting to me because he's one of those characters who fluctuates between villainy and I guess being an anti-hero a reluctant hero throughout and your sympathies around Prince Robot the fourth change and at the end his last moment is him offering to sell out Hazel do you think that was a ruse like a, a stalling tactic well that's actually that's what I was going to ask you what do you make I, of that first of all I don't have much of an affinity for the robot clans they're entertaining to me they were a more fleshed out C-3PO R2-D2 uh, and not because robots droids whatever they were comic relief at best for me, like absurd comic relief that really inserted themselves into the plot. But him dying, I didn't feel much about it. I care about Squire. I like the sibling relationship between Squire and Hazel, but I don't know. You know, so was it a stalling tactic or was he literally selling them out? I think he jumped at the opportunity to go into witness protection. He selfishly cares about him and his family and their well-being above all else. So in the selling out of Hazel, I think it might have been a stalling tactic. But if he had no other way out, I think he would have sold out Alana, Marco, and Hazel. Yeah. So I don't really have much character empathy for Prince Robot. He was kind of glorified comic relief, even though he did have a pseudo arc of redemption and anti-hero arc. Again, I was more attached to Marco and Alana, so I wouldn't have put it past him to sell out Marco, but at the same time, I think he's conniving enough to do a double cross or, or fake it. So I think we're approaching this differently because you're talking about empathizing with him. And I certainly have conflicts with Prince Robot the Fourth. You know, there are times when I like him, times when I don't. But I would say that- But I never liked him. Mm. I was just entertained by him. I will say that that ambiguity at the end, whether his reformation actually happened and he was just stalling or whether he would have sold out Hazel and her family, that made him interesting to me. And I I kind of actually hope that Brian K. Vaughn never resolves that ambiguity. I kind of like not knowing. Dying and not knowing. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it, it creates this, this mystique around that character. Because, you know, a reformed villain is boring, but the reformed villain that can always go back to his villainy, that is always interesting because they're on this sort of razor's edge constantly. And they might be on one side, they might be on the other side. You just never that know. Keeps it, you never know. And that keeps things really interesting for me. And that's what I appreciated about Robot. The fact that he's kind of a wild card throughout all of this. Hmm. And I also appreciate the one area where he's not a wild card is his love for his son. He is motivated by the, as you mentioned, preserve the family. And so that's what I like. He has this moral gray zone, but he also has this one area where it's absolutely not, non-negotiable. He will do everything he can to protect 
his child. Well, and if anything, there was that parallel quest. At the beginning of the book, he just wants to go home to see his baby being born, and he will hunt Alana and Marco to the ends of the earth. And as the story goes on, once he realizes his son is alive, his wife isn't dead... Actually, I don't remember how he found all these things out, but he's on his own parallel side quest of everything for the child, which includes teaming up with his former quarry. Yeah, and I think at the end, that's one of the reasons why I I was probably more disturbed by robots death than Marco's. I'm going to print his team shirts like I'm going to wear a team Marco shirt and you're going to have a team robot shirt. (laughs) Team robot. uh, Damn straight. Look, I mean, all things being equal, if I were hanging out with somebody, I'd hang out with Marco and Alana. But in terms of just the drama and who I'm more interested in, I'm more interested in in Prince Robot. And what made it tragic to me really is that his son, he gets his head ripped off and his son is literally an orphan at that point. And, you know, everything that Robot did for good or for ill, again, was motivated to preserve the well-being of to look out for his son. Well, Squire stole Punk Conk. So, I mean, how dare you steal Punk Conk? Yeah, Squire should probably die <laughs> like we should have a we, i mean we kind of do almost have like a, a dead kid theme going i mean between uzumaki and saga and what we're gonna read next week i feel like we literally should have a deadpool bracket right of like all the remaining <laughs> saga characters oh that's actually a good idea the saga deadpool i, I want to ask one final question i mean i hope i know the answer to this but do you think marco's really dead yeah i hope so i mean not because he's an asshole or anything but you know for if, if he shows up alive it's just, uh, it would undermine all of that impact. Yeah. He has to be dead. Otherwise, Vaughn loses any dramatic effect he was going for. Yeah. We won't know for a while. Deaths have to stick. And so far, honestly, they have. There haven't been any surprise reveals or resurrections short of hallucinations. So, and I'm a fan of that. Keep it up. Keep them dead. Well, we shall see. So I just wanted to say one thing. I think the best thing that they did for this story was to set up Hazel as she's not a hero. She's not necessarily going to go out and change the world. The only hope that you have is that she leads a good, normal life. And the fact that we're hearing this from her grown-up perspective, she kind of lays it out that way, is the beauty of all of this craziness, of the importance with which they build her up to be as this world-changing, war-defining, or potentially peace-defining character. They've put it in her own words. She's not special. She's just kind of a normal person. And that just gives me great hope that there are more turns to this story as it reaches its conclusion, because somehow they're going to find a way for her to settle down and just live the life that Marco and Alana always hope for her. And that warms my heart reading the book and, and gives me a new perspective as I think about it. Yeah, I mean, and this won't ruin anything for you, Ryan, but like one of the last lines in the final book before they go on hiatus is thanks to my parents at least i get to grow old and yeah tristan like reading that moment right in in the moment that it occurs it hurt me as a father and it like just warmed my heart to read it i actually don't know if brian vaughn and fiona staples have kids it's clear that at least one of them is married right but they got to me in a really good way and they continue to get to me like i said every time i read this i go on my own hiatus with the book and every time i come back i start from the very beginning because i want to go through the journey because it's like going through old pictures of of a kid of different stages in your relationship with the kid so um i feel like most science fiction tries to comment on the craziness of the world the the politics of the world the racism etc because hey we're dealing with rocket ships and robots and stuff and what this one ingeniously did was it was about rocket ships and robots and aliens but they decided to just hit really close to home i don't know when this is coming back i can't wait for it to come back but they leave you hanging so ryan what are we reading next time all right so next week keeping up with our proud theme of child endangerment we are reading beautiful darkness by fabian velman and kara squett it is a beautifully illustrated graphic novel about a bunch of little people who live in the body of a little girl. And reading with us is the writer Alex Palmer, who's written Happiness Hacks and The Santa Claus Man. But don't let his cheerful bibliography fool you. Beautiful Darkness, I would describe it as a nightmare version of a children's book. Can't wait to read it. And I can't wait for the inevitable nightmares it's going to cause me. Tristan, thank you as always for making the conversation more interesting and more sensible. I don't know about interesting, but I'd like to think that I always bring sensible to the table. So 
Thanks for having me. I had a great time. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please be sure to subscribe, share with a friend, and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your fine podcasts. If you vehemently agree or disagree with anything you've heard on this podcast, first email in our inbox, qtdcomics at gmail.com. If you have a recommendation for a book we should read or have a point of view on a book we've already read, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd give you a social media handle, but we're old, and frankly, that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe. Thanks for joining. And remember, anyone who thinks one book has all the answers hasn't read enough books.